Okay. Psalm 20, last week we covered, was a royal psalm. This psalm seems to be a continuation of Psalm uh, 21. Let me show you some points of contact. Um, A very obvious point of contact is the word king. And the word king was in the last verse in Psalm 20. It is in the first verse of Psalm 21. So there is one connection. Also, the phrase, the right hand. In chapter 20, verse 6, the expression was used. It is used in 21, verse 8. In 20, verse 6, Uh, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed and He will answer from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. And then in 21.8, your right hand will find out those who hate you. So the word king, the word right hand are common links. And also, and this may be translated differently in your versions, but the word salvation. Now, however differently it's translated in these verbs, it comes, in verses, it comes from the same Hebrew root, which is part of Joshua's name, and of course Jesus' Hebrew name. But you find that word save. In chapter 20, uh, verse 5, twice in verse 6, and then in verse 9, and a form of this same word is used in verse 1 and verse 5 here. So, these are common links between Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. And both of them stress that God is the source of all the king's strength. Now, Again, you may think by talking about the human king, what application does that have to us? If the king, the most powerful of men, is dependent upon God, how much more are all of us dependent upon God? All of us depend and rely upon Him. The outline I gave, the Lord is the source of His blessings, verses 1 through 7, verses 8 through 12, the king conquers his foe, and then verse 13, uh, just a call for the Lord to be exalted. Let's read the words in the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director, a psalm of David, O Lord, in your strength... The king will be glad in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asks life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him joyful with gladness in your presence. 
And before I read verse 7, I would suggest that some writers argue this is the key verse of the psalm. It says, The king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Verse 8, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intend evil against you and devise a plot they will not succeed, for you will make them turn their back. Your, you, you will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. We want to look at the psalm as we seek to do every week. And then we want to try to, at the end of the class, see some ways that we can see Christ in this psalm. When you think about the role of a king, and we talked last time about Lamentations 4.20, which talked about uh, we hope that under his shadow we could live. The nations could live under the king's shadow. They put great confidence in their king. But their king, remember in 1 Samuel 8, they wanted him to go out and fight their battles. But in a certain way, the king fights the battles by simply trusting in God and praying in God, doesn't he? In a sense, he fights their battles by being their chief intercessor. And one of the things you see in these psalms is these psalms stress that the king's strength the king's blessings, everything good the king has is a gift of God. O Lord, now we call these psalms, we call Psalms 20 and Psalms 21, we call them royal psalms because they focus on the king. But while we call these royal psalms, there is more emphasis on the Lord, more emphasis on the Lord than there is on the King. And He is the first uh, first one spoken of in this psalm. O oh Lord, in Your strength, the King will be glad. In Your salvation, He will rejoice. The idea is that God has given Him victory. God has given Him salvation. He is rejoicing in this. He is glad in this. And in verse 2, the text says, You have given him his heart's desire. Now, this phrase is similar to chapter 20, verse 4. In chapter 20, verse 4, May he grant you your heart's desire. I would say this. Those phrases are a little bit closer in English than they actually are in Hebrew. As you probably noticed that, Carter. They are closer in English than they are in Hebrew. But but um, here in this verse, 
Still, the idea is all his blessings are from God. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. Everything he's asked for, God has given. And this is not a statement about the king gets anything he wants. It's a statement about the fact that all his blessings are from God. Where though can you find, and you all know this, the example of a king who was approached by God and says, I'll give you whatever you ask. Who is that? Who am I thinking of? Solomon, yes, very good. First Kings 3, Solomon, he makes a request. Solomon makes a request of wisdom and God grants it to him. Right after that request for wisdom, you have recorded in 1 Kings 3 how uh, they brought the baby to Solomon. You remember this story, Carter? They brought that baby to Solomon. And uh, one lady was saying it was her baby and another lady was saying it was her baby. And remember, Solomon took a sword and Solomon says, cut the baby in half. Said, cut the baby in half. And uh, the mother says, no, no, give her the baby. That's an illustration in context of how God gave Solomon wisdom. God gave him exactly what he asked for. And so, the king is told, he's given you your heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of gold on his head. Now, did all of your translations there in verse 3 have the word meet? Uh, I'm reading again the New American Standard, 1995. But uh, is that what, Micah, you're shaking your head. No, what did your translation have? Uh, Greet. You greet him. Okay. I'm just trying to identify the word. Does anyone have anything else? What translation was it, Micah? NIV. 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 Okay. The ESV wishes it have. It's not that this is a controversial thing, but I want to make... This word has been used three times in the Psalms recently. Uh, It was used in Psalm 17 in verse 13. Psalm 17 and verse 13, the same word was used. And it says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. This is our word meet. This is our word greet. But it says, O Lord, arise against him, apparently his enemy, who is described in the verse before as wanting to tear him like a lion. And this lion, this one, Lord, meet him, confront him. Okay? It's also used, this word, the same Hebrew word is used in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 and in verse 5. It says, the snares or the cords of death surrounded me. The cords of death surrounded me or confronted me in 18.5. 
but it's our same word. And then this same word is used again in 18, verse 18. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. Now, this is the point I'm going to make. If someone had picked up the Psalms in Hebrew and they had the privilege of having a copy and they were reading through the Psalms, every time this is this word has been encountered before, it has been a dangerous thing. You are confronting enemies or you are surrounded by the snares of death. But the very fact that this word has been used negatively in each of these instances highlights the power of its positive use in Psalm 21 in verse 3. Instead of the Lord confronting enemies or or being surrounded by death, He is met and greeted by a gracious God who who blesses him and fills him with every good thing. You meet him with the blessings of good things and you set a crown of fine gold on his head. You ask life of him and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. And you may have a question about that in a moment. But but in verse 5, His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon Him. In verse 5, in verse 5, the, the word glory, and, and listen to how I'm reading verse 5, His glory is great. That word glory... And then later, the word, the word majesty, these words glory and majesty in 21.5, these are the same words to talk about man in general back in Psalm 8. In verse 5, in Psalm 8, verse 5, the Bible said, You've made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. In 21.5, this is talking about the king. 21.5 is talking about the king. You've crowned him with glory. You've glorified him. And you've crowned him with splendor and majesty. But in 21.5, it's about the king. In 8, verse 5, it is about man in general. And my point is that when man and woman are created in Genesis 1, 26-28, we are created as kings in creation, in effect. And we are told to rule over all of the earth. The same language that is used of the king here is used of mankind in general in 8 verse 5. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. You make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Everything about these first six verses is positive. It is upbeat. It is that the Lord has answered the psalmist's prayer. The Lord has blessed the king with every good thing. Every good thing we have is from him. 
all of you do this, whether you realize it or not. All of you have things that you do that you can do well that if someone asks you, how do you do that? You would be clueless to explain it. Because you don't know how you do it, and you never thought about it until you've been asked. It's just kind of instinctive to you. Why do I say that? I say that to emphasize all of us have been blessed with talents and skills that we really didn't do all that much to accumulate. Now, you may not think that about yourself, and your skills may not be the same as somebody else's, but you've got something like that that you do well that you couldn't even describe to someone else. What's true of the king here, that all his blessings and all the good things he has are from God, is true of each of us, that all the good things we have are from God. Now, why would some people stress that verse 7 is so central to the psalm? I stated that earlier. I stated that verse 7 is a verse that many look as a key. Why? Let me read it again and then feel free to answer. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. What makes that verse stand out so much in this psalm? It's the middle verse. Okay, it is the middle verse. That, that is the truth. It is the middle verse. And it may be placed here because of its importance. I mean, that's, uh, that, is, that is really a good answer, uh, whether it was meant to be serious or not. You know. uh, so, uh, but what else do you see, John? I see. Well, you do have contrasting uh, thoughts on either side of that. You've got the blessings on the king, and then you've got the... the, the uh, the non-blessings on the enemies. Okay, okay. That, that, that'll be picking up right in the next, uh, especially too in the next verse, for the idea of not being shaken. But, uh, the rest is addressed to God. Okay, I think, I think that that's what, what I'm hitting at a little bit more here is that you see God's part of the covenant and the king's part of the covenant. That's what I'm stressing. That, that when it talks about God's part of the covenant, it stresses His loving kindness. His loving kindnesses. Now, when it is stressing the king's part of the covenant, it talks about the king trusts So, the king puts his confidence in God. He puts his trust in God. That is his part of the covenant. And God's part is to show his loving kindness. The king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Now, you can think about Israel's history. As you think about Israel's history, which of these two kept their side of the covenant better? 
Did God in His loving kindness or did the king in His trust? And, and some of you laughed at the question because just to ask the question is, is kind of comical. It is God who is always keeping His part of the covenant and it is the king of Judah who did occasionally. Uh, the Bible says of Hezekiah that he trusted in the Lord like none before him and none after him in 2 Kings 18 in verse, in verse 5. But it shows us both parts of what the king must do and what God does. And it says, from the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. And that phrase not be shaken was used in 15.5 it is used in 16.8 but it's because of God's loving kindness that we will not be shaken that we will not be moved any any ideas on those first seven verses that you have? anything? John? so are these, is this trust Is does the loving kindness come because of the trust, or is the trust in response to the loving kindness? Or is that a fair even question to ask? Um. Yes, I think that is a fair question, and I think God always initiates and takes the first step. Um, it's kind of verse three. Yeah, that's right, that's right. That the Lord meets you and the Lord blesses you with good things and puts the crown of gold on your head. Um, you know, we said about the Ten Commandments, you may not remember this point, because this is not the main, this is not the main point, but we, when we started the Ten Commandments, we emphasized that some Jewish people still divide the First Commandment as... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now whether that's the first commandment or not is not the big deal. Because it's there in the text either way. And the point is, before God tells them how to live, God has already shown His loving kindness to them. They are a nation of slaves that He has rescued from slavery, that He has rescued from bondage, that He has brought out to salvation. So God's loving kindness is primary. Our trust is a response to that. And you might wonder too, what is the value of studying biblical history? Uh, A great value in studying biblical history is that it gives us reason to trust. Because we see what God has done through the ages. We see His faithfulness. We see His loyalty. We see His loving kindness. And because of that, that allows us not to be shaken when we face difficulties. Anything else? We love Him because He first loved us. Yes, He takes the initiative. 1 John 4.19 Yes, we love because He first loved us. Now, God's presence to the king is joy, it is celebration, it is victory, it is everything good. But God's presence to his enemies isn't the same. It's not the same. Now there's a difficulty here. There's a difficulty in verses 8 through 12. 
does terms like you and you, God has been addressed in verses 1 through 7. God is addressed in second person singular. God is called you continually. But when we get to verse 8, except for verse 3, which addressed both the king and both God in third person. Uh, But in verse 8, is the Lord still the one being addressed by by you and your, or is it the king that's being addressed? Or do they kind of blend together uh, in this? And and, and I'll let you make up your mind because uh, a lot of sources you read, they're going to come to a different conclusion on that. But just know know that, that, that there's a little ambiguity about this. Your hand will find out your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Now, back in 20 verse 6, that term right hand was used in this uh, in, in, in a similar psalm. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. There, God's right hand saved His people. But in 21.8, the situation is different. God's right hand crushes, it finds those who hate you and eventually will crush crush them. Verse 9, you will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. Is that a full-blown concept of hell? I, I, I don't think it's fully developed there yet. But it sure does lead you in that direction, doesn't it? I mean, if there is uh, God's presence is salvation and deliverance for His people, and it is judgment for His foes. Let me read the verse again. You'll make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. Even if the you is addressing the king, you see that the king's anger in verse 9 and the Lord's wrath in verse 9 are closely connected. And the, the king's anger and the Lord's wrath swallows up and devour their enemies. And even in verse 10, cut off, their offspring. In verse 10, their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. The, the, the Lord through the king is going to wipe out those who are enemies of his people and he's going to wipe out even their offspring. Now, there are some of these royal psalms that speak of the king being a blessing to all nations. And you see that like in Psalm 72, verse 17. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. That was Psalm 72, 17. That's talking about the king too. Psalm 72, 17. While the nations call him blessed, in Psalm 21, 
when the nations oppose God and fight against God, the Bible says they will be destroyed. They will be cut off. But it is not the Lord who in a sense... We, we, John questioned a second ago. It's very good to tie in with this. Is it God's loving kindness or man's trust that's first and primary? It's God's loving kindness that is first. When it comes to God's judgment and God making His enemies like fire and swallowing them in His wrath, is God's judgment primary or secondary? You see the question I'm asking? You notice in verses 11 and 12, though they intend evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. It is the enemy's anger and hostility that they initiate and that leads to God's judgment. While God's loving kindness and mercy is His initiative, by His initiative, it God's Judgment and hostility is in response to man plotting evil against God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together saying, let us tear their fetters apart and break their cords asunder. That's Psalm 2 and those nations are seeking to rebel against God. And when they rebel against God, The God who sits in the heavens laughs at them. And here, whether it be God or the king, verse 12 says, you make them turn their back and you will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. God is pictured sometimes at shooting arrows at His enemies. Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. Sometimes the enemies are pictured. Sometimes the kings are pictured this way. What thoughts do you have right there? Anything or questions? Yes, right? I'm kind of wondering if maybe this goes back to your earlier question about why verse 7 is so important. Um, Maybe it's because, to me, it looks like the verses following it are showing how the king and the Lord are inseparable when the king trusts in him. And so, verse 7 says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. So it's through the Lord's loving kindness that the king will not be shaken. And that all happens because of the trust that he has in the Lord. And so, when both of those things are happening, they're together, they're not separated that's right it's only through the Lord it's only through the Lord that he can win these victories that he can defeat these foes because sometimes these people they were fighting were stronger and mightier than they were and um, so that's very good any other thought right there do you have something Brad you look deep. Look deep in thought.
uh, uh, Bob? There seems to be a sense of this uh, God's justice is it perpetually follows uh, his enemies and therefore the king's enemies as the king has aligned himself with the Lord. So he's always there, always, always providing for uh, the king's best interest in the Yes, absolutely. And all of this is to lead, as verse 7, as Ray was talking about, to trust in the Lord. All of it is because he defeats his foes, as Bob said. He defeats his foes. He brings down his enemies. He blesses him with every good thing. And all of this is just to lead to trust in God. And he says in verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength we will sing and praise your name. It is interesting in this last verse of the psalm, the king isn't in the picture. In the last verse, it just says, Lord, be exalted in your strength. The first verse of this psalm opened by speaking of the Lord's strength. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad. The last verse closes by mentioning the Lord's strength. The first verse said that the people will rejoice in God's strength and God's salvation. Here we will sing and praise your name. So I'm saying that verse 13 is a perfect ending to verse 1. That this is an inclusion, inclusio, where the theme developed at the beginning uh, is dealt with at the end. But everything, the only reason that the king is blessed is because of God. The only reason he can defeat his enemies is because of God. And all rulers recognize that, don't they? <laughs> How many rulers in Israel and Judah? recognize that. Let's let's go back to a simple question of Israelite history. The kingdom divides after after Solomon's time. You have Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. How many kings of Israel were good? Kings of Israel after the divided kingdom period, David? Zero. 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 All of them did evil. Okay? Let's go to Judah. Were more of those kings good or bad? Bad. More of them were bad. There are... Uh, who are who are the ones... There are two that are focused on that are really good. Who were they? Josiah and Hezekiah. Josiah and Hezekiah were the two really good ones. You have Asa and Jehoshaphat who seem to be pretty good most of the way. Uh, they, they made some big mistakes. Uh, and you got four in the middle uh, of their history. Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham who are all described as good kings but outside of Jotham all of them have more evil recorded about them than they have good recorded about them. So what I'm saying is in Israel's history, it was the exception for the king, even in Judah, it was the exception for the king to trust God instead of making alliances with more powerful nations, instead of doing things like that. 
it was it was the exception, it was not the rule. And so should it surprise us that that's the situation today? And, and in a certain sense, this is contrary to some things we rejoice in. There are some who are dependent upon government. We think it good to discourage that. And so we sometimes use the term self-sufficiency. We don't look to government to save us. But we're not self-sufficient either, are we? We're not. It's not self-sufficiency. It's not self-reliance. It is dependence upon God and a recognition that every good thing we have is from God. Every good thing we do is a blessing from Him. And every time that we meet a foe and we are victorious, we are blessed. I want you to consider, and I think all of you are in the same boat that I am. Uh, I'm 58, and I have preached openly since I was 15, and I have never spent a night in prison. Now, that may be funny, but, but Paul couldn't relate to that. The very fact that we've been allowed this kind of blessing and freedom is a gift from God. And it's something to be thankful for. And it's something to, to rejoice in. And, but what is the temptation in Israel's history? The temptation is when trouble comes along, that we're going to put our trust somewhere else. Let me briefly tell you, I put a lot of verses up here last time. I said we might talk about them more. Let me at least talk about one of these. Um, in, um, we talk about the days of Ahaz. Okay, here is, here is, well, I don't, you know, I hope in this educated audience, I don't even have to explain this, that you know what this is. Duh. Uh, This is the ancient Near East. And this is Egypt, as you can see right here. And this is Egypt. And this is the promised land. This is Israel. And this is Judah. And here's the Sea of Galilee running into... Uh, the, the Dead Sea or uh, Sea of Chinnereth. Uh, sea of Chinnereth is like Galilee in the Old Testament and running into the Dead Sea. And then you have the nation of Aram or Syria located about here. And what are my two bodies of water here? What are these two bodies of water going through Mesopotamia? Can you tell what those are? Okay, is this Euphrates and this is the Tigris. How many of you have not been to the Promised Land? How many of you have not been over there? I haven't been there. 
you don't need to go now. It's almost like you're there. It's, it's so vivid. It's so real. It's almost like you're there. But this is what happened in the days of Ahaz, king of Judah. He was king from 735 to 715. And the real powerhouse, the world powerhouse then, is Assyria. And Assyria is moving west. And they're going to conquer everything that lies in their path. And the king of Aram, you read about this in Isaiah 7 through 9, 7 and 8 especially. You read about it in 2 Chronicles 28, and you read about it in 2 Kings 16. I know it's important because it's told three times in the Bible. And when Assyria is marching west, these nations know we have no chance of standing against Assyria. We, we don't have any chance. The only way we can have a chance is if we all bind together. Now that had happened before in Israel's history. In the time of Ahab, all these nations bound together and they fought Assyria and they defeated them. And they're hoping this can happen again. So what is happening is Ahaz in Judah, the, the nation of Aram and, and Israel are joining together and they're coming to war against Judah and they're saying, Judah, you're going to fight with us whether you like it or not. And if we have to kill you, Ahaz, and take you off the throne and replace you by somebody else, we're going to do it. And when Aram and Israel are coming against Judah, the Bible says Ahaz's heart was shaking like the the leaves on a tree and the people's one. Ahaz has three options here. He has three options. His three options are join the alliance. Join this alliance. Join with Aram and Israel and hope that all of you together can withstand Assyria. Now, Isaiah tells him, listen, this coalition is coming to nothing. And they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. So Isaiah the prophet is telling him, don't do it. Don't join this alliance. His second option is to send to Assyria for help. To send to Assyria for help. Now, this makes sense in a certain way. These nations are are fighting against Judah because Ahaz won't join their anti-Assyrian alliance, so why not tell Assyria and let Assyria just bring their wrath against Aram and Israel? But Isaiah tells him, don't do it. If you do it, they're going to do you more harm than Israel and Aram ever could. So don't join the alliance. Don't send to Assyria for help. The final option was you just trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. But but they're coming to kill me. Trust the Lord. They're going to devastate us in our land. Trust the Lord. Assyria is going to devastate us. Trust the Lord. That's Isaiah's name. 
That's his message. Do you remember which of these three Isaiah did? Or, or excuse me, Ahaz did? Yeah. Should he have read Psalm 20 and 21? <laughs> Now, I'm glad that none of us today have ever done that. How many times in your life can you think in a crisis that you have turned everywhere for help but to the Lord? I, I have. And it's kind of after all else fails, oh, maybe we should turn to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying I've done that every single time in my life, but I have done that. I have done that. And because Ahaz did that, he left that same problem for his son, Hezekiah, who could either surrender to Assyria or to send off to Egypt for help or to trust the Lord. And Hezekiah, believe me, he looked other places for help too. But when it finally came down to it, he put his confidence in the Lord. And the Lord killed 185,000 soldiers outside of Assyria. That's in Isaiah 36 and 37, 2 Kings 18 and 19. When your faith grows dim, read those passages. Isaiah 38, 36, 37, 2 Kings 18 and 19. And see how God delivers. It is hard to live trusting God. It is hard to live that way. It was hard to live that way 700 years before Jesus. It is hard to live that way now. But that is the only solid ground that we have in the midst of a world of quicksand. What other thoughts do you have? We could say more about that and we could give more illustrations of that kind of thing, but I hope that helps. But let's talk about how does this psalm, how does this psalm show us about Jesus? Now, I want you to know that I'm sure I'm missing things. Some that you may have picked up on, some that we may all have missed. But how do you relate Psalm 21 to Jesus? Mark? He is the ultimate of kings. Okay. He is the king of all kings. Um, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. I believe that's Revelation 19 or 16 that uses that expression. It might be 14. Someone can look me up and uh, tell me. It's 16. Okay. But, but he is king of kings and lord of lords. And I want you to think about this too. 
just take a concordance sometime and you look up the word king in the New Testament. And when it refers to Jesus, there's going to be a heavy emphasis on those things around the cross. He reigns as king in a very very real sense. The cross is his throne. And he is holding out his scepter of mercy for all to come to him. Heavy concentration of the use of that phrase king around around the crucifixion. Uh, That brings up some other ideas, but I want to see first if you've got anything else uh, to what Mark said. A lot of what we're going to say in connection that is going to be tied to what Mark said, but yes, Mary? Um, Verse 3, you meet him with the blessings of goodness. Made me think of when Jesus was in Gethsemane and God sent the ministering angels or spirits to him. Okay. That is very good. God met his need and strengthened him. I think that is only told in Luke 22, 40, um, I believe it's about verse 43, but but you're right, and that's one I did not write down, Mary. That's a good, that is good. That is good. Here are some thoughts I did have down. Um, I in twenty one one that word power that's used in the Greek translation the Bible says with your power you um, it, it said here strength but it says O Lord in your strength the King will be glad Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead the same word used in the Greek translation there is used in Romans 1 verse 4 so in a certain sense the king rejoices the king glories in God's power and the salvation he brings and then there are two other words in this text Um, the Bible talks about um, the king will be glad The, the king will be glad And he will rejoice. Now again, going to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the term be glad, both of these terms are used in Acts 2.26 when Peter is talking of the resurrection of Jesus. So all these verses, all these, all this vocabulary from the Greek Bible is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. So just as the king was victorious over his foes by the Lord's power, so he is raised from the dead by the Lord's power, and he rejoices that he is glad. Mary mentioned verse 3. I had mentioned, I had forgotten the part about verse 3 that she used, though that's a very good point about the angels meeting him and helping him. But even thinking about the term crown, while this term was this term is used in the New Testament only a few times of Jesus. And every time it is used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, 29, in Mark 15 and verse 17, In John 19 and verse 2, it is talking about Jesus with a crown of thorns. He wore 
a crown of thorns so that we might wear a key, a crown of gold. So that he was raised from the dead so that we might be raised uh, from death in sin and, and made to sit in heavenly places with him. The term glory that is used in verse 5 in the Greek translation is used of Jesus when the Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 2.11, after His miracle of turning water to wine, uh, the crowds... um, it says they, they, this was the beginning of His glory. It uses the term glory. Maybe he said, Restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began in, in 17 verse 5. In 17.22 and 17.24, the same kind of thing. The term majesty that is used of Jesus... In chapter 21, verse 5, this term is used in the Greek translation of the New Testament in 2 Peter 1.16 to talk about His majesty. And there it's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. His enemies... consumed by fire. This is not so much a word, but a concept. When the Lord Jesus shall come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not obey God, who do not know God and do not obey His gospel. Now, all of these connections I've made from here on deal with the Greek word, what I'm about to say ties with the Hebrew word. In verse 9, look at verse 9, you will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow the Lord will swallow them up in His wrath. He's going to swallow up his enemies. That's the same Hebrew word that's used in this passage. Isaiah 25 verse 8. Isaiah 25 8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe away all tears. That verse, of course, is quoted in the New Testament. And we are told that the last enemy that will be put under Jesus' feet is death. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? But He will swallow up His foes. He will defeat His foes in the resurrection. And the words... Be exalted. Now this goes back to the Greek. Be exalted. The word that's used in the Greek translation there, and I'll put brackets around all these things that are Greek, 
It's the same word when the Bible says that Jesus was lifted up. Talking about the type of death He would die in John 3, 14 and 15. In John 8, 28. In John 12, 32 and 33. He was lifted up. He was exalted. And it's used to speak of the ascension of Christ. How He was exalted to God's right hand in Acts 2, 33 and Acts 5, 31. Acts 5, 33. No, Acts 5.31, excuse me. But the point I'm making, I'm sure I'm missing things, but Mary already pointed out something that I missed that was a very valid point. But He fulfills all of this. There's one passage I said we may go back to and look at later. Um, Look at verse 4 just a second. Verse 4 He asked life of you, and you gave it to Him length of days forever and ever. When the Bible says something is going to be this way forever, what does it mean? Remember, Hannah vowed, Lord, if you give me a son, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, she said, I will give him to you. Well, 1 Samuel 1 verse 22 says that I will appear before the Lord and leave Him there forever. 1 Samuel 1 But two other times in that text, in 1 Samuel 1 verse 11, she vowed to give Him to the Lord all the days of His life. Same thing in 1 Samuel 1 Verse 28, 1 Samuel 1 11, 1 Samuel 1 28, give him to the Lord all the days of his life. That's forever here. When you say that you're going to be married forever, you mean till death do you part. You can't, can't seal that marriage in eternity. Um, as some try to. And it's... No. Go there. But... Um, but doesn't that take on a different meaning if you see this ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah? That, that Let me take a step back. Do you remember the period in Israel's history where they had about four assassinations in 20 years? Can you imagine if that was the case in this country? Yeah, I, I can't. I was a few months old when John F. Kennedy was president and he was shot. And my dad, of course, can remember it very vividly. And he said he just couldn't believe that that could happen in America. And he said he was stunned that he thought America was more civilized than that, was past any of that. Can you imagine what instability it would indicate if you had four assassinations in 20 years like they did in Israel? And so when they asked for long life for the king, 
that was a good thing for the people. They, it, it helped the people be stable. It helped the nation be stable. It, it was good for everybody. But it takes on a whole different meaning when you have a king that never dies in Jesus. What else am I missing, guys, that you all can see? I will start.